Spider-Man drops in to give Hornhead a hand in dealing with a new menace in the form of the Masked Marauder, who will pit hero against hero in this, the 44th episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Hello, true believers. Welcome to episode 44 of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the podcast all about Marvel Comics Man Without Fear. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but since we're all friends here, you can call me Dave. This week we begin a series that I'm calling the Masked Marauder Trilogy, which is not a completely accurate title, since it ties into some of the earliest episodes of this very show. In it, we will see Daredevil go toe-to-toe with Spider-Man thanks to the manipulations of this villain, Masked Marauder. But before we get into the comic, part two of my ongoing defense of Daredevil the movie from 2003. This week, a Dave's Eye view of the preceding months leading up to the movie's release. Because I want you to have proper context, not only from where I'm coming from and how I approached the movie, but by how many approached the movie and how many reacted to this movie when it first released. The first rumblings I heard of this movie were in 2001, when I was living in Kansas City. And, of course, it was announced that the movie was in development. A lot of rumors were going around. Matt Damon is a possible daredevil. A lot of things. But things started to solidify when we got a director in the form of Mark Stephen Johnson. Now, he's made a few movies since then, notably Ghost Rider. But at that time, he was known for a one single movie that he wrote and directed called Simon Birch which was more of an indie, feel-good movie. It was an attempt at Oscar bait. Now, I was still dubious that this movie was ever going to happen, because how many comic book movies were really in development at that time that were never going to see fruition? But things got a little more solid when Affleck was cast, and I thought this might actually happen. Don't get me wrong, my doubts were still there. Comic book movies weren't the sure thing they are now. I mean, Superman was in movie hell, which it would remain in until Brian Singer made Superman Returns. Spider-Man had just been in this long, gestating movie hell and was months away from being released. But again, comic book movies were not the norm. We'd had X-Men. We were going to have Spider-Man. But there hadn't been the standout hits at the level of, say, The Avengers or Iron Man. But slowly, this thing started to take form, and I was getting excited this movie started to really take form. We had further casting. Michael Clark Duncan was the kingpin, which is still a genius stroke in my opinion. And we also saw Jennifer Garner cast as Elektra. Both of these I'm going to talk about at more length in uh, subsequent episodes. But, you know, Jennifer Garner had me excited for a different reason. She was a fresh face from a new show called Alias. So she had no real definition to her career. She was the wild card. She was the one I was kind of wanting to see. But still... I didn't have my doubt dropped until I got news of a set report. And the set report described Daredevil's costume as a motorcycle suit, which kind of terrified me a bit. Of course, Mark Stephen Johnson had mentioned that the suit would have a tweak to it, that it would be different, but you would immediately recognize it as Daredevil. This was not sounding like that kind of situation. Until I got to the end of the review, and somebody mentioned that Daredevil's mask looked like a bow and bust. 
Now, on my shelf, I do have a Bowen bust of Daredevil, and indeed, the mask does look like that. This got me excited. So when I finally got my first look at the costume, I hit the roof. Because in the promotional shot, which you'll easily Google, it's Daredevil standing on the corner of a roof, it looked like Daredevil at a glance until you started looking closer. And the thing is, I still kind of like the costume. Yes, there are problems with it in the movie, particularly for me, the open collar. But when we get to the third act, when Daredevil finally snaps that button and closes up that collar and looks more traditional, oh yeah, it looks great. But being back in Springfield at the time that costume came out, I had a lot of nerd friends, and this caused a lot of discussion. And it turns out I wasn't the only one excited for this movie. Now, I'm the only one with a lot of familiarity with the character, but it turns out there's a group of us who are excited at this movie especially when we had a sizzle reel come just a little bit later in the summer, which the reel itself was just rapid-fire shots. Daredevil at Josie's Bar, Daredevil and the Gargoyle, Coolio, Kingpin at what looked like a dress rehearsal, but still got us all excited. This is important that a group of us were excited, because it turns out people in Kansas City, where I had just moved from, were excited too. There were a group of us who were devoted to seeing this movie. I will come back to that. Now, Evanescence had a song in the movie called Bring Me to Life, which kind of floated up from the interwebs. It was available by streaming through a direct website. And I kind of fell in love with the song and admittedly still like the song because of the association with the movie. Now, of course, I was allegedly looking to download this since it wasn't released yet. But all I was able to do was download this odd voice clip, simply saying Daredevil, which became a bit of a theme. Every now and then we would just randomly say Daredevil. But finally, the first trailer hits. The prowl, the rooftops and alleyways at night. I was frothing at the mouth. The group of us watched and rewatched it and got excited for this movie. The second trailer hits. How do you kill a man without fear? We were at fever pitch. It wasn't just me excited for this movie. Now, I was coming at it as a longtime Daredevil fan, but people were looking at it as a potentially good, exciting, worthwhile superhero movie. And so plans were made to go as groups to go see this movie on opening weekend. Again, this is important. However, I moved back to Kansas City just a few weeks before that, with the intention of coming back for the weekend to see the movie. As I left the city, the soundtrack was released, and I grabbed it at my local store, and it was okay. A lot of songs really stand out, a lot of songs really could have been done without. And by that I mean Rob Zombie. Normally I like Rob Zombie, but come on. So, we get to opening day. I don't get to go home, but several groups go see this movie. I go with my roommate, waking up so I can see the first showing in the morning. I saw it again on Sunday with my other roommates. Loved it. There was a lot of calls to friends, this group of people who were excited to see this movie, even though we didn't see it together. We loved it. The message boards, even though I was limited, had high praise for this movie. When I went to the comic shop, people talked highly of this movie. And suddenly here we are, after the excitements died down. Years later, and people talk about this movie like it's a pariah. Even people I knew who loved it when the movie came out. Now, admittedly, the movie has issues where it hasn't aged as well as it could. Special effects are, well, over 11 years old. But what changed? That's what I want to know. What happened with this movie that people were so excited about, who praised it as being close to Miller's material, for praised it for being accurate to the character of Daredevil? What changed? My mind hasn't changed. I liked it then. I like it now. In fact, I'm talking about it, which should say something. Inspired by happening to be at the theater I saw it at. What a weird, random thing. 
Apparently this movie left a mark on me. So why is it that this movie is put in the same breath as Jonah Hex? And I'm not asking this as a rhetorical question. I literally don't have an answer. But if you do, please feel free to email me. Fill in the gaps there. What changed? But I wanted to give you that, A, to pose that question, and B, to explain to you that I went into this movie extremely excited with high expectations, probably more than Spider-Man or Attack of the Clones earlier that summer, and I walked out satisfied. I can still put it in my DVD player and feel satisfied. So it met my expectations, which were high, which were forged in the fires of excitement. And again, what changed? We'll talk more about the movie in context itself next week. Kind of breaking down the good and the bad. I'm not saying it's the greatest movie ever. Again, this is a warts and all defense. But I'm going to be focusing on the early scenes with Jack and Matt. But I'm going to put that to the side. And this week, we have a comic to talk about, as per usual. And Spider-Man is in the hizzy. So get ready for the beginning of the Masked Marauder Trilogy saga thing, whatever I want to call it, right after this podcast promo. The Ultraverse Network begins now. Over 20 years ago, Malibu Comics debuted the Ultraverse. It may not have lasted long, but the creativity and quality of its titles and creators caught many readers' imaginations when it first appeared and in the years since. This network of fans celebrates the fun and excitement of the Ultraverse and its awesome writers, artists, and characters. Featuring three ongoing podcasts covering a variety of topics, including Nightman and Solitaire, our blog will feature regular coverage of The Strangers, Sludge, Firearm, Ultraforce, and all your other favorites. Look for Ultraverse Network on iTunes and visit our website at ultraversepodcast.com. We are giving Ultraverse fandom a jumpstart. And we are back to cover Daredevil number 16, which bore a May 1966 cover date. And the cover on this shows the New York streets rendered in this gray, sketchy style beneath Daredevil and Spider-Man, who are leaping across the cover at one another. This is some glorious John Romita art. And you know what? The cover is very simple. It's very effective, though, and the color is the key. You have two heroes rendered in primary colors basically floating because there's no real distraction. The city is, again, in a sketchy, sort of fade-out pattern. And by that I mean, as we get further and further across the horizon, it just vanishes. So it allows these two characters and their seeming fight to really stand out as the only thing that your eye is drawn to. It's just a gorgeous cover, one of the more famous Daredevil images. The story inside is entitled Enter Spider-Man. Written by Stan Lee, penciled by John Romita, inked by Frank Giacoya, and lettered by Artie Simic. If you're wanting to read this and not pony up big bucks, you can find it in Daredevil Annual Number 3, Spider-Man's Greatest Team-Ups, which is a great trade paperback from 1996, Marvel Masterworks Volume 29, Daredevil Volume 2, Essential Daredevil Volume 1, Marvel Visionaries John Romita Sr., which is a wonderful hardcover, and the Digital Root, Comixology, Marvel Digital, and Marvel Digital Unlimited. Now on that, I want to tangent for just a moment, because I've grown to love my Marvel Digital Unlimited subscription more and more. And again, this is straight from me. I'm not paid to promote Marvel Unlimited. I have no stake in it, other than being a user. But for those that don't know what this service is, it's available on Android and iOS, and basically works like Netflix for comics thousands upon thousands of Marvel comics. The subscription runs about $70 a year, which I know at first sounds like a sticker shock, but 
let me lay some numbers out for you. The normal newsstand price for a single comic is $3.99. If you subscribe to a single comic, over the year you're going to pay about $48. If you subscribe to two, you're in the neighborhood of $95. This subscription costs less per year than buying two comics each month for a year. And it's thousands of comics. Not just classics, but those are there too. Complete runs of uh, Captain America, Iron Man, Thor. A fairly spotty run of the first volume of Daredevil, but a fairly complete run of Daredevil Volume 2. But not only that, newer comics end up in the app about six months after publication. And some of the more modern series are collected in whole. Uh, for example, Superior Spider-Man, which I just read recently. So I would say, personally speaking, as a personal endorsement, not a paid or sanctioned or requested endorsement, that $70 a year is a steal for this. Now, if you still like your digital comics, but don't want to go the unlimited route and you have an Android device, which I know is a small but growing population, let me give you another quick tip before we dive into the story. The Comixology app does not allow you to make purchases on an Android device using a Google Play gift card. There is a way around that. Because it's nice to have all your books under one app, right there at a fingertip. The DC and Marvel apps, which work off the same platform but have a few concessions, do allow you to make purchases with a gift card. Which is nice, since you don't have to pull money out of your bank account, you can use cash, you can control how much you spend. So you can make the purchase in the individual apps, and then turn around and download them directly into Comixology. Sure, that's an extra two apps, and it's probably not the greatest piece of advice, but you know what? There it is. So with all my digital talk out of the way, let me dive into Daredevil number 16. At the law offices of Nelson and Murdoch, Foggy and Karen are amazed at the spectacular and sensational web of adventure that is Spider-Man. See, Spidey is shown on TV taking on the troops of a new villain, the hooded masked Marauder. Foggy says something snarky about Daredevil being a glory hound full of himself, which ticks Karen off. But Foggy admits it's just jealousy at the thought of Karen thinking about any man but him, which glues Matt into his partner's feelings for Karen. Meanwhile, incensed at being defeated by Spider-Man, the Masked Marauder hatches a plan, and he has his underlings dress up as Daredevil. When one of the underlings questions the Marauder's actions, that thug gets an Optoblast to the face, and the rest are sent to seek out Spider-Man. And they do, staging several attacks and then running away, making Spider-Man extremely angry. So now, the wall crawler is on the hunt for the Man Without Fear. And let's stop there for a moment and take a look at the comic so far. When you open it to page one, you have this nice, effective title splash. It's a great angle because Spider-Man is on a wall, while Daredevil throws a billy club at him, hitting near Spider-Man. Again, it's not as exciting as the cover, it doesn't have as much focus, but the downward angle really draws your eye to it. Very gorgeous piece of Romita artwork, and Romita is still drawing Spider-Man off of the Ditko form. And of course, still, Romita's being courted to take over Ditko's spot, as Stan is kind of smelling what Ditko's cooking and that Ditko may be gone soon at this stage. But then we jump into this story and they're talking about this fight with Spider-Man versus the Masked Marauder. And I thought, did I miss an issue of Spider-Man? Did I miss a portion of this crossover? Because this fight comes out of nowhere. I had to double verify that my thoughts were correct that this is the first appearance of the Masked Marauder. And it is. There's no missing issue of Spidey. This just happens off panel. Now sure, it sets up the story and condenses this, but kind of wanted a fight between the two of these. 
because the Spidey versus Max Marauder situation would have been kind of entertaining. It would have been an exciting way to begin the story instead of hanging around the offices of Nelson and Murdoch. It's kind of like watching a baseball game at the field or getting your highlights at home on the evening news. Now, the Masked Marauder himself. This costume is, I won't say it's atrocious, but it's pretty tacky. Imagine Magneto's suit from the first X-Men movie. Then kind of use Adam Strange's Finn helmet on the top. Add some Dr. Octopus goggles. And then this handkerchief for a face mask. It's like this guy takes fashion advice from Cobra Commander. It's just hodgepodge, and it doesn't make him look all that threatening. But then again, this is a villain that pretty much stays in the background and just plays these people like puppets. And as I mentioned, Foggy says Daredevil is a glamour boy. He's a glory hound, and Karen puts him in his place. Because, well, Daredevil has saved both of their lives. But at the core of this is the Foggy-Karen-Matt-Love triangle. Matt, knowing that Foggy has feelings for Karen, basically mentally steps out of the way. The ball is in Foggy's court. If nothing else, this shows that Matt is a step-up guy. He has an inkling of how Karen feels for him, he knows how he feels for her, but the fact that Foggy feels as strongly for Karen as he does means Matt wants to get out of his friend's way. He does not want to see Foggy hurt on his account. This shows how much Matt cares for Foggy and how important the friendship is to him. And I really like that even though Stan isn't doing a big grandstanding gesture, you still get that these guys care about each other as friends. And that's a friendship that carries the book at times, to be honest with you. And then we move on to Masked Marauder hatching his little plan. We have nine daredevils standing in a room, and that sounds like a great setup for a joke. Where would you get all these costumes? But more importantly, what the heck is an Optiblast? There's not a lot of explanation. I know it seems to blind this guy, but it seems to do a lot more damage. I have this weird obsession with how this Optiblast works. I can't see a lot of logic behind it. So I've spent a lot of time exploring this, rereading it, trying to find clues. The only thing I can figure out is it's kind of like uh, lights on a police car now. If you ever notice, it's hard to drive by a police car that has somebody pulled over because the lights are so bright. And that's intentional. These are designed with a certain debilitating feature. The light is so intense that when you have it in your rear view, it becomes incredibly hard to drive. That way the lights are not easy to miss. And you ever notice you get a little bit of a tinge of a headache after looking at them because of the intensity. That's the closest I can figure it. And I swear, I've been like ICP and fascination with magnets with this. I can't figure out anything more beyond that because it does seem to debilitate this guy where something like the police lights, you're over it by the time you're at the next stoplight. However, I don't feel as bad for the guy that got the Optoblast to the head as I do for the rest of these. The Marauder is pitting Daredevil against Spider-Man. And these goons are essentially worms on a hook. They're the bait. Cannon fodder would also be a good word for them. They're even wearing red shirts. But luckily, none of them get caught as they're taking their little sneak attacks at Spider-Man. As I mentioned, Ditko forms Spidey's image. Ramita's using that house style. And he's being groomed to take over. Nothing proves this more than pages 5 and 6 of the story, which are a bunch of panels of Spider-Man swinging around for two pages. Two pages of Spider-Man. Yes, there's some little breaks here and there, but primarily, that's all you're seeing. It's a Ramita tryout. That's why Spider-Man's in the book. That's why we have two pages of this. And as Spider-Man gets frustrated with this, he tells himself he sounds like a typical frustrated bad guy, which is almost meta-commentary on the dialogue, because, yeah, the dialogue, well, Stan's dialogue can often come off cheesy. 
It sounds negative, but it's also indicative of the time, the way comics were written then. More of a observation than a critique. Either way, the Marauder's plan has worked so far. Spider-Man's mad, he's out for Daredevil. So, where is the real Daredevil in all of this? Let's jump back into the story. Having heard reports of Daredevil in the area, Matt ignores a less than subtle hint from Karen about a date that night. Instead, Matt suits up as Daredevil and seeks out the fake Daredevil, but he quickly finds an angry Spider-Man instead. It doesn't take long for the two to come to blows. But while they fight, the masked marauder uses his high-tech car with a vacuum tunnel to steal plans for an advanced auto engine, the XB390. With no heroes to stop them, the marauder and his men get away with the theft, leaving two optoblasted guards behind. Daredevil, meanwhile, gets the upper hand on Spider-Man, wrapping the wall crawler against a pipe with his billy club line. Daredevil takes off, once again leaving Spider-Man extremely angry and looking for another round with the man without fear. Alright, so jumping back to my notes. Matt really knows how to stick the knife into Karen's heart and twist it. Again, he knows how she feels about him. He knows how he feels about her. And the thing is, he's not taking the high road in this instance. Because who needs Foggy when Matt can block himself? You kind of expect this from Spider-Man who is a kid, who doesn't quite know how to balance these things, who is not college educated, who is not a proficient lawyer, but Matt should really think about how he pushes Karen away. Sure, it's a necessary evil in his line of work as a superhero and as a lawyer, because A, we're dealing with a professional situation. B, of course, he's Daredevil. That's a lot of danger for Karen. And he has work to do, but still, there are better ways to let Karen down than just outright ignoring her. But this leads to a great suit-up scene, with Daredevil checking his billy club. I almost hear turbines to speed, which doesn't fit, it's the wrong character, but definitely that same vibe that you would get the tingles with when Batman and Robin would jump in the Batmobile and roar out of the Batcave back in the 60s. And Daredevil's swinging around and Spider-Man finds him and uses one of my favorite underrated aspects of Spider-Man, the spider signal. I know it doesn't have a quite as much function as you would think, but it's a solid icon producer. I love the images of villains being cast in that light. It brings a level of intimidation to Spider-Man's game. I think for me it's a visual. Again, it's an icon. It looks great. There's a lot that can be done with that artistically. On a technical level in a story, it can become cumbersome. I will admit that. But you know what? I like what I like. Spider-Man gets a good dig in, too, because he tells Daredevil that he liked the yellow duds better because it fits Daredevil's true colors. It's like a rap battle's about to happen. Plus, it references Spider-Man number 16, in which the two characters crossed over for the first time, if you remember that from episode 2. What kind of bothers me, though, Daredevil's trying to say, hey, I didn't attack you, and Spider-Man doesn't take a moment of pause. Sure, sure, there's emotions running high here in Spider-Man's world. But you would think that would give just a little bit of pause to say, hey, that's strange. But then again, we wouldn't have a fight. So it is what it is. Again, it's part of the fight-then-team-up format. Meanwhile, during the robbery, we have this truck that I mentioned in episode 4, which is probably recommended listening after next week's episode. The truck, or van more accurately, it's still goofy, but it works in the goofy way. It has this pneumatic tube which allows people to enter high places. And for some reason, the way that it's rendered under Ramita's pen, even though the, the spatial relations don't work, the science doesn't work. The way it's rendered makes it seem plausible. It's kind of like Kirby Tech, except Ramita is doing this in such a grounded way 
in sort of almost a borderline boring way that you're almost willing to accept, sure, why not? We get two security guards that take an Optoblast to the face, but let's get down to it. The main portion of this is Spider-Man fighting Daredevil. These two really going up against each other for the first time as, well, in Spider-Man number 16 it was a simple team-up. So putting these two head-to-head, -head, how is it that Daredevil comes ahead? What is it that allows Daredevil to get the edge in this? Well, I've done all that thinking for you. See, if you put these two head-to-head, -head, you have Spider-Man. Spider-Man sticks to walls. Daredevil doesn't. So there's one advantage to Spider-Man. Spider-Man has web shooters. Well, in this one they're fairly even, because Daredevil has a billy club. Spider-Man has spider sense, Daredevil has radar sense, and both have exquisite balance. Spider-Man has spider strength. Daredevil's strength is above average. So what is it that gives Daredevil the advantage? Because Spider-Man still has the advantage in strength and the ability to stick to walls, giving him a tactical advantage from a location standpoint. Well, Daredevil has age and experience. Daredevil trained from a young age to hone his skills and hone his senses. It's something that's been with him since he was a child, and Daredevil is now in his mid-twenties. Spider-Man is roughly 16, 17 at this point, and he didn't gain his powers till he was 15. He didn't really go through a huge training regimen, he relies on the powers themselves. Now as Spider-Man goes on, he begins to develop some instincts and uses that brilliant brain of his. But for right now, in this issue, in this instance, the reason Daredevil wins is because he's trained and he's had a long time to really take that training to heart and focus it. Theoretically, Daredevil's been doing this for a lot longer than Spider-Man, even before the Daredevil identity. So he's able to wrap Spider-Man up, but here's what bothers me. With that age and that experience and that common sense, again, we're talking about a proficient lawyer. Why doesn't Daredevil take advantage of Spider-Man's being tied up to ask him what's going on? Daredevil just cuts out. He's like, peace. They're bound to meet again, and Daredevil won't know what's going on. It would behoove him to simply ask, why did you attack me? Why do you think I attacked you? Tell me what happened. And then that would lead to a quicker team-up. But no, Daredevil takes off. You just ticked off the guy with spider strength. Thanks, Daredevil. Way to go. So that basically means that this isn't over by a long shot. So let's look at the last leg of this story and find out how things play out between these two heroes. Still licking his wounds after the fight with Daredevil, Spider-Man returns to his normal life in his civilian guise of Peter Parker. While his Aunt May dotes on him, his boss, Daily Bugle publisher J. Jonah Jameson, berates Peter for not being able to deliver pictures of the Masked Marauder's robbery. Jameson claims that Spider-Man, always a menace to the mind of JJJ, was in cahoots with the Masked Marauder, which is what the front page of the Bugle reads. Elsewhere, Matt ponders the headline, wondering if the noble hero he met while still wearing his yellow costume could be capable of such a crime. But back at the office, Foggy tells Matt that he suspects that Daredevil and Spider-Man may both be working for the Masked Marauder. While that discussion rages on, Spider-Man is on the prowl for the Marauder and suddenly his spider sense flares up. Spidey realizes that Daredevil is nearby and follows the trail to the window of Nelson and Murdoch. Using deductive reasoning, Spider-Man realizes that the blind guy can't be Daredevil, nor can the pretty blonde secretary. That leaves one choice, and Spider-Man crashes through the window to take Hornhead by surprise. Grabbing Foggy, Spider-Man accuses him of being Daredevil, as Matt can only stand helpless as the unfriendly neighborhood Spider-Man raises a fist, and that cliffhanger closes out Daredevil number 16. At one time, I pitched a theory about Aunt May and kind of the manipulation that she might have had in her own 
nephew dealing with the devil. But now I kind of, I have another theory to run by you. This one's a little awkward, and I know Aunt May is either beloved or berated, but you ever notice that Aunt May really relies on being doting all over Peter? That she's always worried about him being sick or catching a sniffle? Could it be that Aunt May is trying to work through her Munchausen by proxy? Could she be slipping something in the wheat cakes that she suspects would make Peter sick, therefore he relies on her and never, ever leaves? Just a theory. Think it over. Think it over. There's plenty of evidence in the Spider-Man comics. While I'm not a big fan of Aunt May, I'm never sad to see Jolly Jonah Jameson. Let's be honest, this guy is terrible for news. There's no fair and balanced, and there's no unbiased. Daily Bugle is one of the worst newspapers that ever existed. It relies totally on speculation that Spider-Man is a menace. That's usually their front page. If J. Jonah Jameson had his way, Spider-Man was the other gunman on the grassy knoll, and perhaps he assassinated President Lincoln as well. However, that's what makes him entertaining. That's why I always like to see him, because it's goofy. However, I've seen people take this character and make him into something more. He was really kind of a foil, a fun foil at that, for Spider-Man for a long time, but darn it, he's so funny. But I'm glad to see some of the supporting cast coming over into this book. I'm also kind of hesitant to see it, but I'm going to get around to that in a moment. While arguing with Foggy, Matt gets a little too passionate about defending Daredevil, and Foggy almost puts it together. One of the things that bothers me, and I've stated this before, so I'll state it very briefly here. One of the things that bothers me the most is that Matt never reveals his secret to Foggy. I'll give you a little spoiler. Foggy eventually finds out, but Matt doesn't volunteer the information. He volunteers it to Karen, as we saw, but he never tells Foggy, and I think Foggy deserves to know. If anybody in Daredevil's life was going to have that reveal put on them, Foggy is the one that deserved it the most. Somebody who has stood by and put up with Matt's for so long. I would have loved to have seen Foggy actually put it together, to actually deduce it on his own. But, again, I've stated that before, so I'm going to move on. Mask Marauder is talking about how syndicates, organizations, nations will all want to buy this experimental engine. And the thing is, how do you fence stolen plans like this? Plans. They have blueprints. How do you fence that? How much is an experimental auto engine really worth? Maybe that's just the fact that I'm not a criminal that puts me at a disadvantage there. But we get more swinging of Spider-Man. You getting the picture yet that we're grooming Ramita for Spider-Man? But we get to this point. That's probably the biggest sticking point for me. Yeah, there are flaws in the issue, which I'm going to get to in my final verdict. But the thing that bothers me the most is that Spider-Man's Spider-Sense seems to work as the story needs it to. See, the Spider-Sense is supposed to, by design, warn Spider-Man when danger is coming. And I know Andrew and Michael over at Hey Kids Comics have talked about this as well. This is a perfect example of this. Matt and company aren't a threat. They're in the office, arguing amongst themselves, when Spider-Man senses them. How? How? How does he sense something that's not a danger? You tell me, because I can't figure it out. Matt and company, not a threat. But we do see a little validation in my theory about the youth and inexperience, because Spider-Man swings through the window, violently crashing through it. This causes property damage, and you know what? It's potential injury to innocence. Assuming Foggy was Daredevil, Karen certainly isn't. Karen doesn't seem to be in league with him. Karen could have been injured by the flying glass. Or, heaven forbid, Spider-Man accidentally hitting her as he swings in. It's basically youth being driven by emotion, and, you know, 
that's good character work in a way. I don't think it was intentional, but it's good character work nonetheless. Spider-Man is very much an emotional teenager, especially during this period, who is lashing out and not really thinking about the consequences of his actions and the injuries it could cause to innocence. But this leads us right up to this climax, where Spider-Man has Foggy by the collar, raising his fist, about to punch this dude's head off. And that's where the issue ends, at the height of excitement. So let me get into my final verdict and give some overall thoughts on this. We have this out-of-nowhere introduction of the mass Marauder. We don't actually get that Spider-Man Marauder fight. So we lose the potential for excitement. A great entrance. It bothers me a little that Spider-Man actually got more page time than Daredevil in his own book. Again, a Ramita tryout. I love Ramita. I love Ramita's Daredevil. I love Ramita's Spider-Man. I'm glad things played out. However, the tryout should not be at the sacrifice of the book's title character. As such, with all of this space and Spider-Man swinging around, it takes the story eight pages to really get its traction. Now, once it hits that eight pages, it's on. And Daredevil and Spider-Man go at each other. It's great. Daredevil wins round one, which is fantastic. I don't want to sound like I'm complaining about Ramita's art. Again, I love him. His art is on point. He's refining and rounding out Daredevil without softening him. You still feel that this is a masculine character. He's still kind of continuing the development that Wally Wood was playing with and that Gene Colan would perfect. And, of course, all ongoing subplots are present and accounted for. But really, the issue was a crockpot slow boil to set up the next issue. Now, on that level, it works. But again, we're sacrificing time with our title character to spend time with Spider-Man. And I feel a little guilty enjoying it. Because story-wise, as a standalone, it's just below average, but still good. Ramita's art is elevating it, and I love looking at this. I love looking at his Spider-Man. However, I open up a Daredevil issue to read about Daredevil. And that may be my biggest complaint on this issue. I would say, to be accurate, there would be two. Pacing, and the amount of time we spend with Spider-Man and Spider-Man's supporting cast. I'm glad to see them, and luckily here we get most of them in moderation. But still, it feels like, feels like the inverse. It feels like an issue of Spider-Man that features Daredevil. And again, I feel a little guilty for that. But, all in all, again, it ends up being an average issue. But that brings us to a close for this episode, because we have this amazing cliffhanger, which is kind of what the issue's all about, in some extent. Next week, we're going to pick up with Foggy in the clutches of Spider-Man. Will Spidey crush his head, throw him out of a window, or just come to his senses and realize that he simply cannot be Daredevil? And what will become of the Masked Marauder's evil plan? All of that, and more, will be answered in seven short days. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can sure see in the dark. They call a man without fear Never far away Whenever danger's near There's never fight for what is right There's never fight for you tonight You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers. Or stream it on the Stitcher app, which gives you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted to dave at daredevilpodcast.com or through the website's handy contact form. The show is on Facebook. Simply search for Dave's Daredevil Podcast. And I am on Twitter as well. My username is at Dave Weeder. 
Weeter is spelled W-E-T-E-R. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists solely for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening. Oh!